0: This episode of Last Things First is sponsored by the Impractical Jokers. America's favorite four comedians and lifelong friends, Sal, Joe, Q, and Murrah of the Impractical Jokers, are about to endure their biggest punishment yet, and they're going to do it live. This year's season finale features the Impractical Jokers teaming up with Nitro Circus, For high acting stunts, fan favorite challenges, and thrilling punishments, it's sure to be their biggest season finale ever. See the Impractical Jokers Live Nitro Circus Spectacular Two Hour Live event on Thursday, November 3rd at 8pm on True TV. Live in Philly or the Tri-State area? Then see it in person at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey. Go to Ticketmaster.com and be a part of Impractical Jokers history. You first saw Joe Rogan on the classic NBC sitcom news radio, then later has hosted the competition show Fear Factor. Now, not only can you see him commentating on UFC fights, but also hear and see him on his hit podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. His latest stand-up special, Triggered, is exclusively out now on Netflix. So let's get to it! Um, speaking of time travel, if I were to go back in time and visit you as a teenager in Newton, Massachusetts uh, and told you that uh, thirty years in the future uh, you could make a living as a mixed martial artist uh, stand up comedian, and one of the top broadcasters in the country, which one of those things would shock you the most?
1: Um, uh, probably all of them. <laughs> you know when i was 19 especially like uh 30 years ago i hadn't done stand up yet i hadn't right. done anything yeah so they probably all shocked the shit out of me <laughs> <laughs> what did
0: you so what did you imagine at 19
1: i was just competing back then that's all i was doing was fighting right. so i really uh i had no idea what i was going to do with my life and no, that was like and also, when I was 19, it was right around the time where I started having real questions about the intelligence of what I was doing. Because I had uh, seen a bunch of people get really badly hurt, like real real bad uh, knockouts, mm-hmm. like head kick knockouts. And I, I was starting to uh, question the sanity of my, uh, my, my pursuit and my discipline, you know, what <laughs> I was up to. So all I was doing, I was obsessed with fighting and competing. That's all I was doing, so... Uh, I definitely never thought at that time that I would ever be doing stand-up comedy that's for sure. nor that I think that I was a very good speaker. Mm-hmm. And I, and at the time I really wasn't. You know, I wasn't uh I mean I would uh, I would teach cl- uh classes. At mm-hmm. that time I was actually teaching at Boston University.
0: What were you teaching?
1: Teaching taekwondo. Okay. And um I mean I had uh I taught a lot of classes too like uh at my um at the J Kim Taekwondo Institute in Boston but I didn't think I was a good speaker I didn't think that I, I would wind up being someone who uh, would be a podcaster or a broadcaster in any <laughs> sense of the word
0: yeah you get everything everything uh, that makes you money is based on talking
1: I know it's weird
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was what was the first what was the first thing that gave you an inkling that that this could be the life for you
1: Was there there a
0: moment in Boston that you
1: Well, it's really just stand-up. I mean, all of it has come from stand-up. All the different things. They've all come out of stand-up because stand-up led me to acting and all the the other different things that I've done on television, which made me famous enough that the UFC would want to have me on, which made me, um, you know, interested in trying to do a podcast. All all that came from stand-up. Right. You know, and... When I first started doing stand-up, it was just like many many of my friends from the time, like Greg Fitzsimmons, who I'm still really close with, and a lot of other guys at the time. We just wanted to be professional. We just wanted to be able to make a living as a comedian. I mean, that was like the ultimate, almost unreachable goal. You would look at these guys like Steve Sweeney and Don Gavin yeah. and Kevin Knox and all these Famous guys in Boston, and they made a living telling jokes. And to us, that just seemed insane, <laughs> you know, like impossible. Like that one day I could be a pro. That's really all I wanted, you know.
0: Right, but as someone who just you know you, you self-admitted that that you didn't envision a life of public speaking, how did how did that idea enter your brain? That I am going to start of, doing this stand-up thing. It was I'm gonna... of
1: friends? It was. Friends talked me into it. You know, uh, the people that I used to work out with, really, Mm -hmm. they told told me I was funny. One of them is my friend Steve Graham, who I'm still uh, really close with to this day. And you know, he was a older guy. He was an ophthalmologist actually, and he told me he's like, "You're funny. Like you're a funny guy. You say funny shit. Like you should, you know." You should really consider being a stand-up comedian because I was a big fan of stand-up comedy, but uh, really, honestly, I never thought about pursuing it until somebody brought it up.
0: So, where did you go first? Was it Dick Doherty's or the Connection? Or... Stitches. 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 Stitches was all around. around. Okay.
1: Yes. Yeah. Because that was just right. Um, uh,
0: that was just right What's off that? of. Uh, that was just right off the BU campus, wasn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um there was two stitches there was one that was right next to the paradise
0: right that's the one i'm thinking of
1: yeah that was the first one and then they moved and then they moved um where's the second one <laughs> one of them's calm where's the paradise is that off of Com ab? yeah that's
0: right on comment yeah
1: and then what was the other one the other one was a, uh, close but you mm-hmm. know different different location okay But anyway, that's when I started. I started doing stand-up at Stitches at an open mic night, just signed up like everybody else can. And uh,
0: was was Kevin Meaney still kind of big then?
1: Kevin Meaney had already quote unquote made it by then. Okay. So he he was kind of gone, and uh, I actually me and my friend uh, Diane went to see him perform at Catch a Rising Star in Cambridge. Okay. And uh, I was uh, I think I was probably not doing comedy yet i think i was thinking about doing comedy mm-hmm. but i hadn't done it yet and he was just on fire He was just <laughs> insanely funny back then he was yeah. so good but uh that was uh one of um those moments where you realize like wow like there's there's like crazy levels to stand up comedy and kevin Meany at that time had hit this insane insane level
0: exactly how lo- how long did it take you uh, before you decided to leave boston
1: well, I met my manager at uh, the old Duck Soup Comedy Club. <laughs> Remember Duck Soup? I do not. Duck Soup was uh, – it became the improv after a while. It was okay. Duck Soup for a while, and then it became the improv, and then it went away. And it's uh, at the Wilbur. Okay. So the downstairs club in the Wilbur was uh, a comedy club at one point in time. I mean, if, I don't know if you know, but at one point in time in 1989, I believe, or 1990 – there was four comedy clubs just in that Warrington Street area.
0: Right, because you had the, was- the original Connection, you had Nicks,
1: Yeah, you had Duck Soup, and then you had um, Mike Clark had a club above the original Connection. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was crazy.
0: Yeah, because in, uh, in that documentary, when stand-up stood out, they talked to the old guard about how they used to do eight or nine sets, which you only mm-hmm. really hear about people doing in New York now.
1: Yeah, but in New York, you're doing it all across town. Right. The craziest thing about Boston was they were doing it all in one spot. I mean, it's really quite amazing when you think about the level of talent that came out of that one area. <laughs> it's just its amazing. Louis C.K., Nick DiPaolo, Greg Fitzsimmons, Jay Leno, Stephen Wright. I mean, you can keep going on and on. And then, the, of course, the local guys. like. Right like Gavin and Sweeney and Mike Donovan and some... Like, those guys are... They're at the level of, like, world-famous, na- you know, national headliners, and nobody ever found out about them. It's he, kind of weird. Yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> I guess I guess they, they found that they could continue to do enough gigs in New England that they didn't have to.
1: Well, yeah, sort of. They, <laughs> you know, I mean... Some of I, I them. love those guys, so I, w- I don't want to say anything bad, but they should have left.
0: Well, you do, you do in your new special, uh, Triggered on Netflix. You do joke about uh, the Boston weather and how it makes everybody sound the same. So,
1: well, it's, I, it's all <laughs> shitty weather in general. Do you think shitty it, weather and shitty environments make people sound the same?
0: Does it also breed good comedy?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Well, it breeds also breeds intolerance to. Uh, the, the shitty senses of humor <laughs> you know like boston does not have a whole lot of patience for people who suck mm-hmm. and it's one of the reasons why comics are so good from boston uh, it's it's one of the things that made them so good is that you, you, can, you can't get by if you suck they just they're not going to let you
0: even bef- before you've had your infamous takedown of carlos vencia at the comedy store with Ari Shafir. I remember hearing stories about the old comedy connection where the headliners would would throttle a guy against the wall if if they
1: oh, yeah. him. Oh yeah, Kevin Knox did that to some guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, yeah, there was an intolerance to hacks there, and a lot of that you could attribute also to Barry Crimmins because Barry Crimmins, who's just a brilliant guy, was really sort of the ethical and moral voice of the comedy community, and I think. Honestly, without Barry, it's, it's quite possible that the scene would have never become what it was because he was such a powerful figure and he was so smart right. and so well read and so aware of all the stuff that was going on in the world and so completely intolerant to bullshit. You know, and now uh, have you seen "Call Me Lucky," the Bobcat Film on him? Yeah, you now you understand why, right? Yeah, and I... <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing um, documentary on Barry, and just you know maybe love and respect him even more. But I really think that he he's one of the primary reasons why Boston had such a high standard of comedy, because in a lot of places there's a lot of doggy dog world shit going on. you yeah. know, I mean. People do what they can to get by. They lie, they cheat, they plagiarize, and we're seeing it still even today. And people support the people who plagiarize because they hook them up and they, you know, they get them a gig somewhere or they, you know, they take care of them. They, you know, they they put them in a movie or something or a TV show. I mean, that that kind of shit still goes on to this day. But you know, Barry Crimmins, he wasn't having none of that. He's... And- and, 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 I think he's the real reason why that that community was so so ethical. Well, he also
0: made sure the comics got paid well too, which yes, which, forced, which forced the other clubs to pay up.
1: Yes, he did. Yeah, no, he's he's huge. He's a, he's a huge factor. With you know?
0: yeah, with with self policing, do you do you find you know comics t- talk all the time about how. Uh, we self-police each other and that's how we make sure that that things don't people don't get away with stuff do you do you find that that still holds true in this kind of wild west internet age we're in
1: it works up to a certain point but here's where self policing doesn't work when one person is really really famous and powerful and the other person is is broke and <laughs> vulnerable and that is where you see the majority of stealing you see stealing coming from people that have power, and they're taking it from people that have little. That was the Carlos Mencia issue. Right. He was stealing from people that were his opening acts. He was stealing from people that people didn't know that well. But then, you know, his hubris led him to steal from Cosby. <laughs> which was ultimately his downfall. It's kind of funny, you know, that it happened when Cosby was respected. Right. If it, if it happened today, people probably wouldn't even give a fuck.
2: I know. You know?
1: <laughs> Poor It was Carlos. like, people were outraged back then that he stole from this cherished member of our culture. Right. And now, you know, Cosby's thought of as a pariah, which is really kind of fascinating, because it was only nine years ago, you know? Yeah. So it,
0: so it essentially takes... Uh, powerful people in the industry to stand up for for the little people.
1: It's one of the only ways uh, it gets exposed because when when people get accused of plagiarism and they're really powerful, a lot of what you see is people that. I mean, I've had people come to me, or especially since the a thing, when. Famous people may or may not have plagiarized from them, and they're really scared. They don't want to get their career ruined, and it fucking happens, man. You know, I mean, one of the things that was really eye-opening to me about the Mencia thing was that my own agency called me up and wanted me to apologize to him, and we're we're insinuating that if I didn't apologize to him that we were going to have an issue and that I wasn't going to be able to work with them because we had the same agent.
0: Yeah, Gersh.
1: Yeah. And I I couldn't, I was, I was shocked. So two things happened. One, he got me banned from the comedy store and then he started headlining there and using his name on the marquee, which he never would do before. He would never let them put his name up there. And then because, you know, he wanted to preserve the the appearances when he was in LA as a big deal. You know, like if you're playing a large venue, you don't want people to think that they go see you at the comedy store any night. Right. You know, that you want to make it seem like this is big deal that you're at this large venue that's the only time you're in town so when he would perform at the comedy store his name would never be on the venue he would just show up so he got me banned from the comedy store that was one thing and he got my agency to dump me now it, it really didn't affect me because even though those things happened i was already wealthy and I was already established, and it wasn't hurting me. It wasn't like I was worried about where my next meal was coming from, and now I'm fucked and I can't make my rent. It wasn't that. But it was, wow. It was like, this is really how they do things. This is really interesting. So this is something that if I was a starting comedian, if I was just starting out and I accused him of plagiarism, it would be devastating, devastating. My agent dumps me. I can't work at the main club in town. I mean, it would be horrendous. So that kind of shit, young young comics or non-established comics, they really do have to worry about. So whenever you see a really big comic that gets accused of plagiarism, pay attention to the people that are accusing them. And, you know, you, you see a lot of scared people sometimes. You know, yeah. it's some, sometimes people say, oh, they're jealous. Like, that was what Dennis Leary always used to say. Everyone's jealous. Everyone's jealous. Like... Listen, man, no one, no one accuses Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, Kevin Hart, Louis C.K., Bill Burr. No one's accusing any of those fucking guys of plagiarism. Almost always. Almost always. I'm, you know, there's obviously some exceptions to every rule, and there's, I'm sure there's a bunch of fucking people that are crazy and that think everybody's plagiarizing them. But almost everyone who gets accused of plagiarizing shit is a plagiarist. <laughs> It, it, you know?
0: It, yeah, it actually reminds me of uh, what Trump just said in the uh, in the last presidential debate where he was accusing all the people who were accusing, accusing him. He's saying, oh, they just want to be famous.
1: It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, buddy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be famous by, by sticking my neck out. Um,
1: yeah, I'm going to be famous by saying that Trump, Trump grabbed my pussy. <laughs> After he talked about grabbing pussy. Uh
0: you 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 do joke in the special about uh, we're we're being closer to a President Trump. Do you still feel that way as we're getting well, it's, it's closer to watching?
1: More and more. I recorded that in June, right? And uh, obviously, he's falling off more and more every day as more things get revealed. And I'm sure part of that is probably by design, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah. I mean, he's obviously he's the Republican. Representative, I mean, he's really close. Yeah. <laughs> Whether he wins or not, he's about as fucking close <laughs> as you can get without winning. Yeah. Scary shit. It's very scary. And also, by the way, you can make a real argument that even though he's fucking scary, Hillary is horribly corrupt. I mean, she just is. The more WikiLeaks things that come out that reveal. All this pay to play shit that's going on between her and the Clinton Foundation, and all of the emails that were deleted, and she tries to say they're about yoga classes and shit. I mean, she's just a liar. She's a liar, and she's corrupt. And when she contradicts directly the fbi statements on her emails like when she talks about it i mean i don't know if you've seen the video but there's a video where someone put together what the fbi says about what she did and versus what she says the fbi says about what she did and it's just not true she's not a truthful person she's a politician yeah, she's a political politician, politician yeah. who has a goal and that goal is to become the first woman president and she's probably going to make it you know and you know maybe that's better than him winning i don't know it's it's all pretty <laughs> fucking sorted out right now
0: i think it's better if one person wins than the other but
1: uh, let's get you think back. It's better if she wins I than think, he wins i think so i well, think it's I better for all i think it's, for it's all better all for the culture yeah you know it's better for um, w- the way America is represented she's way more eloquent she's way more reserved the way she communicates is far, far more professional and presidential, but what she represents is politics as usual. You know, I don't think he represents anything better, but what he does represent is something different. He represents a shakeup of the system, a massive shakeup of the system, some rich, blowing loose it up. cannon. Yeah, a rich, loose cannon who's not beholden to anyone else. You know, I don't know if that's good or not, but what he represents is something different. Yeah. What she represents is something very much the same.
0: I want to I want to ask more questions about you though. When when you were when you were a young uh, comedian who knew, nobody knew, who who was big who stuck stuck up for you and helped help you climb up the ladder?
1: Um well, I mean there was a lot of people who helped me. Uh, and a lot of them helped me just by me watching them, mm-hmm. you know. There's a lot of comics that you you see them and they're just so good you just want to go home and write. That's that's that was one of the cool things about Boston was that you got a chance to see all these guys that come into town from other places. Like uh, they would come in and headline Nick's for a week, or they'd headline a connection. Like I got to see Hicks before Hicks became famous. Um, I got to see God Richard Jenny a bunch of times. Oh, I saw yeah. Richard Jenny many times, and you would see them and you would you would go wow like that that's that's possible like someone can reach that level of comedy you know and you're it's so much different when you see someone on television you really love them versus seeing them live in a club and you really get a sense of what they're all about you know
0: but i mean like you like to have uh you know a small stable of people who who tour with you on the road as your middle actor opener was there somebody who did the same thing for you
1: No, not really. No? No. No, you know, before I left Boston, I was really kind of a glorified amateur. You know, I was just, I was doing gigs and I was getting paid for them, but I probably should give all that money back. (laughs) (laughs) I I probably should have never been paid in the first place. But, you know, I just, I worked for a bunch of different people. Uh, Primarily, I worked for uh, Dick Doherty and Mike Clark. Okay. Those are the two people that gave me the most work. And, um, you know, I would just do their gigs, mm-hmm. and and that was uh, pretty much how I made a living. How many, and I would how work many, with whoever they set me up with. You
0: how, know? Ma- how many different rooms did they have at the time?
1: Oh, man, there were so many different rooms back then. The Boston was an incredible place in that you could work like three or four nights a week all over the greater Boston area. You could do a set in town, like at The Connection or at Nick's Comedy Stop on a Monday night or a Tuesday night, you know, open mic nights or showcase nights or, you know, nights where maybe Kevin Knox would host a show and he would say, hey, I can get you on for 10 minutes, and you would do those. And then you would travel to Arlington and do some bar, or you would travel to Worcester and do one of Dick Darty's gigs. or you would tra- There were so many different places you could go to that were within like a two-hour drive. And then there was gigs in Connecticut that John Shuler used to have. I worked a lot for him. There was gigs in New Hampshire and Maine. And, you you, you know, you just had a lot of different options. Western Massachusetts had a bunch of gigs. So there was always a place to go and work. And because of that, you got a chance to do a lot of sets, and there was a lot of stage time. And all those sets combined – you know, really gives you uh, an act. That's really what it is. It's like this slow building process.
0: So, did you how how much time was there uh, after you moved to LA before news radio? Then, or was it?
1: I moved to LA for a show called Hardball. Oh, okay, Hardball was a uh, a sitcom that was on Fox in 1994's terrible sitcom, <laughs> and I moved out here to be on Hardball. Hardball was canceled. Um. After like six episodes, and from there, I was I would have moved back to New York, but I had got an apartment and I paid for a lease mm-hmm. and I bought a TV and a bunch of other stupid <laughs> shit. And I bought like, a TV? Wow, I
0: mean, come on, you gotta yeah, you gotta stay God. now.
1: Listen, man, for me back then that was a big deal.
0: Well, also TVs were huge. You could yeah. <laughs> physically to move.
1: Yeah, it was a big, well, physically it was big, too, because it was like, at the time, I could afford an actual television, like a real TV. I was like, wow, I got a TV. I bought a stereo for the first time. I didn't even have a couch. hilarious. (laughs) I used to watch TV on the floor. I I took a while before I bought a couch. But that was, uh, you know, that was how I was, I was just, I was stuck, because I bought that stuff. Right. And so I decided, all right, I'm going to stay in L.A. at least for a year because I have a lease. And during that year, um, it wasn't even a year, it was just a few months, really, I got a development deal with NBC. Uh. And I was supposed to do my own sitcom. But NBC came to me and they said, hey, we have this show that we already did a pilot, but we're going to uh, replace the person who did this one role in the pilot and we think it might work for you. And so they let me watch the pilot mm-hmm. I got a chance to see it. And I was like, wow, holy shit, like <laughs> Phil Hartman and Dave Foley and yeah. what? Yeah. like, <laughs> I'll, What do I have to do? So I went and I, I auditioned for that. I wound up uh, doing it. And then, um, you know, that was it. That's how I stayed in L.A.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I met you was during your fear factor period. In like 2002, I believe, I was a reporter in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, would hang around uh, the good old Tempe Improv with uh, the late, great uh, Daniel B. B. Murr.
1: And, that crazy buck.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and so uh, I, would, I would typically drive him and comics out to the clubs in Scottsdale after the show, and I remember sitting you down in the lounge at a club in Scottsdale and asking you, for advice, and the one thing you said to me then was that I couldn't try to be both a newspaper reporter and a comedian. I had to, if I really wanted to do comedy, I had to quit. And I and I, I took your advice, and I stopped doing comedy. <laughs> oh,
1: man. I, I'm, no, I didn't so, want to, but I'm still I didn't in journalism. That. But I'm
0: still in journalism. and uh, Well, that's
1: good, but what I meant by that is that like, the only way to make it as a comic is mm-hmm. you have to be completely dedicated to it. Right. You, you can't have any safety nets because if you do, you're not going to be willing to do everything that it takes in order to, to get gigs and to, to prosper. You're just not. Yeah, you that's. No, and I have friends that are kind of dabbling now and they're wondering why things aren't happening for them and they do other stuff and they just don't take comedy seriously. I'm like, comedy demands that you take it. You have to do a lot of fucking comedy. You know, to this day, I mean, I went up last night I went up the night before, I'm going up tonight. I go up all the fucking time. Like I did 3 shows on Tuesday night.
0: How, how how important or vital was was your 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 young training in taekwondo and other martial arts? How much how important was that to to giving you the the drive and discipline?
1: I think anything that you do that's difficult to do, whether it's martial arts or marathon running or you know, Michael Costa, who's a really funny stand-up comedian, yeah, was a tennis professional player. Tennis player, mm-hmm. yeah. I think anything that you do that's really difficult to do, where you have to put a lot of effort into it, I think is super important because it teaches you about effort versus reward, or e- effort leading to reward. And I think that for a lot of people, that's sort of hard to. To kind of conceptualize mm-hmm. until you see it take place in front of you, until you see it manifest. And when you do work hard at something and then you see the results of it, it's really satisfying and I think it, it fosters more hard work and, and it, it kind of gives birth to uh, more of the same. You, you, you kind of run on momentum. Right.
2: When,
1: when, you can, uh, when you can sort of, and I also think that discipline is like a muscle. I think you, you, you could develop endurance for discipline. I kind of think you develop uh, tendencies tendencies towards discipline and getting shit done. I think those are really important it's just hard for people man we We like to be comfortable and we like to relax and we like to fuck off, man. We want to just watch t v and just, we don 't want to get shit done and in resisting that, I think is one of the more difficult things about being a person there 's a really great book by uh um, Stephen Preston called the uh, war of art
2: mm-hmm. have
1: you ever have you ever read that no. It's really good. I, I buy stacks of them and hand them out to people. Oh, wow. I always keep like five or six of them at the studio. And uh, it's just, it's one of those books that when you when you read it and the way he describes what he calls resistance, which is the reluctance to work hard, the reluctance to get things done. And in his case, it was uh, about writing, but it applies to everything really. He, um, he just kind of describes and sort of, Illuminates. He turns the lights on that procrastination process that I think a lot of us all suffer from.
0: Especially, especially in comedy. Comedy, yeah, tends to attract those kind of lone wolves that that you joke about in the special where <laughs> we admire the loner, but but essentially we need other people and we need to be active and connected.
1: Yeah, and it's also comics are they tend to be impulsive and they tend to fuck off a lot and that that kind of makes things funny like comics are the ones that while everybody else is sort of looking at things and repeating what everybody else wants them to say the comic is the one that'll go fuck that guy And then people go, what? How are you saying that? You know, but if you had a job, and it was a normal job, and it got back to the boss, oh, I heard you said, fuck that guy, huh? Yeah, well, you're not a very good team player here at, you know, McMillan Inc., and you're fired, Jetson. You know? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. That kind of rebellious attitude that makes for a good comic, that makes for a really shitty employee.
0: When did you realize the need to put that kind of... Uh... That drive into your web presence because you Um, even a long time ago you had message boards and other things on your going on
1: i did i was on like a thought process like i'm going to do this and this is going to pay off Mm -hmm. like the message board was entirely for fun because when i started doing it in 1998 my friend andrew who i'm still buddies with to this day he built my first website okay and andrew was the one who told me about message boards because mm-hmm. Andrew is like a super geek. I mean, he's like a legit genius who HTML codes, co- computer uh, uh, websites from scratch. I mean, he's he's a wizard. And he knew about message boards because he was on those old BBI bulletin boards.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. You
1: know, he was, I mean, he's super old school. Like, he was on message <laughs> boards in like 1994. So... In 1998, um, he had uh, a message board idea. I think it was called Easy Board at the time. If so I do remember, I think we went through two different kinds before we eventually got to what we have today. Okay, but but Easy Board was uh, this like free website message board thing, and we put it up, and it was it's really kind of bizarre, man. Like out of nowhere, um, people just started gravitating towards that spot, and it, and we'd have some really cool interesting or ridiculous discussions
0: how how long did it take before that 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 ridiculous talk on the message boards translated into more people in the seats coming to see you
1: i don't think it ever did oh okay
0: and,
1: i mean maybe a little mm-hmm. but it, it, it wasn't really a promotional thing like okay. the, the maybe the blog itself helped a little because i used to blog a lot um, I used to write things a lot. And then I realized that a lot of those things were actually going to become bits and maybe it'd be better to <laughs> just write and not. And then to have the bits come out uh, mm-hmm. in in the form that they do instead of people almost previewing the bits as a blog and then knowing, you know, knowing the premises or knowing what I'm talking about. Okay. But it was never like a conscious decision to do any of that stuff for promotion. It was really just like I felt... Like, it was a cool way to express myself, and maybe, you know, I had some aspirations towards writing, so I would mm-hmm. write, and that was, like, a way to do that. Okay. But but it wasn't until Dane Cook became really successful through social media, and I think that was around 2003, that I really started concentrating on social media. Okay. I really started concentrating on promoting gigs, um... You know, and then when Twitter came along, Twitter was like a giant one. That was a huge push. But YouTube videos before that, and putting stuff online, and sort of just building up like a, a, a small social media presence that led to the podcast. And the podcast, of course, was without a doubt the biggest of all those things. Yeah. The podcast. Podcasts have been the single biggest. Uh, change or force of change in my, in my uh, stand-up career, for sure.
0: How, uh, how important is it to have video in addition to audio for the podcast?
1: I think people like it because they like to see people's faces. They like to watch sometimes. and some Some people like to listen to the podcast while they're driving or while they're at the gym or what have you, but some people like to look at it. They like to watch it like it's a show. And they also like the fact that it doesn't have any commercials. Mm-hmm. So you could just sit there and if the podcast is three hours, you're gonna watch three hours of people just talking. And that's uh that's something that people enjoy too, you know, that they could you just get a chance you hang out with them. You know, like whoever uh, it is on the podcast, you're kinda of hanging out with them.
0: They could just, you know, print out pictures of the two of us and stare at that while they listen to this. It's almost the same. Well,
1: you're a smart guy, Sean. You know that's not the same thing.
0: <laughs> uh, and then you built your own studio, right?
1: Yeah. What,
0: yeah. Uh, what was the point that made you decide that was the way to go? Was it just well, efficiency? Well, there was no other way
1: because I, well, I was doing it originally for my house. Mm-hmm. And the problem with doing it for my house is I would have a bunch of fucking sketchy people coming over my house. <laughs> and some of them I didn't want to be over my house. You, know? <laughs> you like need a safe Andy space. Dick. Like Andy Dick was one of them. We did it at Brian's house. Uh-huh. I'm like, dude, I, I'm not letting Andy Dick know where I live. He's not He's not visiting. Not that Andy Dick's dangerous, but... He's in a Andy's good spot now. Guys, okay. 99% he's in a good spot now. Now is the key word in that sentence. <laughs> yes. Now is not next week. No. Now is not a year no. from now. You just never fucking know it, no, Andy. And I love Andy, yeah. but you know, Andy's a psycho. <laughs> so... It was one of those things where I just said, "Okay, I'm. This is not something I'm going to stop doing. I'm, I really, really enjoy it. I'm going to keep doing it. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to ramp this up. So okay. the way to ramp it up was to uh, to get a, a studio. Okay. And so now here I am. the The new studio is now five years old or four years old, and so I'm going to get another studio now. I'm, I'm actually buying a building and and putting together, like, a a real professional spot now.
0: And do you have a network of people who also use the studio, or is it just for you?
1: No, it's just mine. Oh, wow. I mean, the only network that I have, in in a sense, is that uh, I have a network of friends, Mm -hmm. and I promote them, but I do it completely organically. Okay. You know, it's not like uh, they owe me something or... You know, I take a percentage of anything they do. There's none of that. So it's not
0: like it's Earwolf for those Kevin Smiths. Yeah, exactly. I think that shit's
1: it. gross, man. I, I I hear what a lot of those places are asking for, and I'm like, holy fuck, man. Like, I have some friends who are trying to do a show on Earwolf. Mm-hmm. They were doing something on Earwolf, and they were uh, talking with them about developing a show, but these Earwolf people wanted a fucking gigantic percentage of the show And they didn't do anything. They had done nothing. They had done nothing to pitch it. They had done nothing to promote it. They had done nothing to create it. But that is their modus operandi. They're trying to be like other television production companies. Like, I have a friend who worked at a television production company as a secretary. She worked as a secretary. And she was developing a show. She's a comic. And as she was developing her show on her own, completely independent of these fucking people, they wanted her to sign a contract saying that they owned everything that she created in her free time while she was working for them so that if she went and pitched a show somewhere they would fucking own it and she was making you know 7 bucks an hour right. as a secretary that, but that is that's the same thing that we're talking about like we're really powerful plagiarists muscle over really weak uh, people who are just starting out, it's the same kind of abuse of power. It's like these production companies, these massive machines absorb people's intellectual property because they work for them for a pittance. I mean, could you imagine if you, if you found someone who is like a real creative genius, like a Larry David or something like that, and you thought you could pay him $7 an hour and own his intellectual property, not only that, during that $7 an hour, it's not like they were paying her to be uh, a, a creative person. Like, hey, we're going to pay you 7 bucks an hour. Uh, we're going to take a chance, and you just develop as many ideas as you can and then bring them to us. No, she wasn't even getting paid to do that. She was getting paid to, like, fucking file envelopes and shit and, you know, go get coffee. She was getting paid to do, like, regular secretary shit.
0: But they, and they wanted her. to
1: own They wanted to own her, yeah. and they thought it was okay to own her show. That's the world that we live in when it, when it comes to show business with a lot of these fucks. There, there, there's some really greedy, really fucking sneaky people that are involved in show business, and they try to steal people's intellectual property in that way. So how do this you- does, by the way, that's really common, yeah. that signing the contract, whereas you work for someone as a secretary and they own your shit, you know, what, what would be great. Is if you had a secretary that was creative and you're like, well, hey, we have a production company. We value you as an employee. Let's make a really sweet deal for you and try to put together your show. And, you know, we'll be the production company and you'll own it because it's your fucking show.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, instead of saying, oh, hey, this show could be the next two broke girls or this show could be the next, you know, fill in the blank, whatever successful show, you know, Chelsea Lately or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're going to own it, and then we're going to fucking – I'm going to buy a house in the Hamptons. And that's how they think. They just think that each one of those things is an opportunity for them to extract money. Instead of looking at it in a fair way, they look at it in a way I can get away with this because I'm a big production company.
0: So how do you keep a level head as you navigate these different fields? Or are you just kind of independent enough that you don't have to worry
1: that. Well, th- definitely that's a factor, mm-hmm. independent enough financially that I don't have to worry. I'm not, I'm not desperate. I'm not needy. I'm financially secure. So that takes that out of the equation. Then I love my friends. So like when it comes to like Ari, Ari Shafir mm-hmm. or Duncan Trussell or Joey Diaz or Bert Kreischer or Tom Segura, any of these people that I love, I want to help them. I want to promote them. So if they're coming on my show, if something's going on, if they have a special or if they have a TV show or something like that, I want people to know about it. I want people to know about their podcast. I want to promote their podcast. I mean, I've let guys use my studio before. I've done a bunch of different stuff like that, but it's just because I want to help them. Mm -hmm. And I want to help them because I love them and because I want them to do well, because I think they're great. Also, because I appreciate the people that enjoy my podcast. I appreciate the fans. Uh, i appreciate fans of my comedy and if i appreciate them i want them to know about other awesome shit you know it's like i tell everybody joey diaz is the funniest (laughs) fucking guy that's ever walked the face of the earth he's the funniest guy ever and i tell people that because i want them to know i want them to know that he's the funniest guy ever but i also i want him to be really successful because i love him like a brother and I think that, you know, but but that's also, I'm not a production company. You know what I mean? Right. Like, these production companies, they have 100 employees. They have a big fucking building they have to rent. There's a lot of overhead. And that that means that they're constantly sucking money. You know, they're, they're constantly have to suck money up. They have to create it and they have to spend it. And that's what leads them to really unethical choices, like trying to get my friend To give up her the rights to her show when she's working for seven dollars a fucking hour, you know that that kind of stuff is gross. It should be illegal. She should be able to sue them, and they should have to go out of business for something like that. But somehow or another, they can get away with it because they're popular or they're successful, or they're um, they're established and they're wealthy, and she's she's
0: poor. Yeah. So, what would you tell somebody who's not even in the business yet, but wants to get into comedy. Um,
1: what, would you, you to, what kind of advice would you I give them? them? in yeah, terms to, of what? <laughs>
0: uh, how would you how would you guide them into into like jumping into this? If they if they're, mm,
1: that's they a good question. Yeah. Um... I would tell them for sure they have to be committed. Mm-hmm. You know, if you really want to do it, you can. You can do it. People are still doing it every day, but it has to really be what you want to do. You can't say, "Well, if this whole water polo thing doesn't work out, or if uh, my cartoon business doesn't take off, or if you know my triathlete career doesn't," you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it has to be. I want to be a comic. I want to be a stand-up comic. I mean, obviously, I do other things as well. Right. So it's not saying it, it should be your, your only life. But if I didn't do stand-up and pursue stand-up correctly, most likely I never would have been able to do any of those other things.
2: Right. Most did- likely
1: I would have never gotten a job on television. I would have never been able to be a commentator for the UFC. I would have never been able to have a, po- have a podcast.
0: It all started with that first, uh, that first desire and determination.
1: Yeah, I mean, and also being inspired by uh, the, the, the environment where I was, um, you know, in Boston where there was so much talent and so, so much quality comedy and such high standards and high ethics. And I just became obsessed with with succeeding in it and the art form and getting good at it and just writing jokes and, and performing and advancing
0: well Joe I uh I, I appreciate you uh your patience with me today and and taking the time to to, to really get into some of this stuff. I, I, thoroughly I enjoyed you, this. Sean,
1: I'm sorry I talked to you out of doing comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to. I'm, I probably meant it the other way man. I probably meant to talk to you out of doing journalism. Well
0: actually well actually what happened is uh I I more and more devoted myself to comedy journalism because I didn't I didn't think anyone else was doing it right. So
1: well, that's great because that – I mean, look, we, we need that. And I, I really do appreciate what you do because you, as a comedy journalist, you, it really comes re- very clear, comes through that you are a comedy fan and that you appreciate comedy as an art form. Because I think that comedy really gets kind of maligned and dismissed as an art form in a lot of circles because it seems less valid than other art forms like plays or like music or like literature. It seems in some ways less valid because because of a lot of the factors that we talked about before that a lot of the people that do it, the kind of fuck ups where we're, a lot of us are impulsive and weirdos and we're you know, we're we're kind of amongst the crazier of the entertainment groups. And the word joke is not thought of as being a, uh, an important creative thing. But I think you agree, and I think I agree, that some, some of the statements by some of the greats, whether it's Pryor or Carlin or Hicks or Kinison and there's been some insight and some, dis- some ways of describing our world, our culture, us human beings in general, that are, that are so insightful. Chris Rock's a great example of that as well that they they've sort of defined in a lot of ways how people view at certain how people view certain subjects because of the clarity of their comedy. Yeah. You know, I think I think comedy is also a unique way of introducing ideas to people where they would never have just accepted that idea if it wasn't funny. Like you could have an opinion on something and you could say it and I could have a completely different opinion and I go, well, "I disagree with you." And this is why. And then, you know, we're just, we're just two people with ideas, and we might not ever see eye to eye. But if you tell me something, and you have a point, and it makes me laugh, even if I don't agree with it, I'm like, God damn it, Sean's got a fucking point. He <laughs> starts laughing. You know, it's like, wow. Like, he made me think about something that maybe I wouldn't have considered if it wasn't funny. And that, in, in a way, is the beauty of, of stand-up comedy. It's not always like that. Like some of my all-time favorites didn't have any social points. Like Mitch Hedberg, he's one of uh, my all-time uh, favorites. Was, yeah, and he was just an absurdist. You know, he just would say silly shit, silly observations, ridiculous, uh, ridiculous perspectives. Oh, whenever I, he did.
0: Whenever I see an escalator that's out of order, I, I always want to put up Mitch's sign, and say, "Sorry for the convenience, Temporarily stairs."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. He had a bunch of great ones. Whenever I see a banana, I think of his joke. Uh, Somebody asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. I said, no, but I want a regular banana later. So, yes. (laughs) Who would ever ever even think of writing that down? And who could ever make that funny other than Mitch? You know, he had a, a completely unique perspective. Yeah. But then there's guys like, you know, Stanhope, whose <laughs> entire point of view is always breaking down the ridiculous nature of our behavior and our viewpoints.
0: And his new hour is, and, his new hour is pretty great, too.
1: He's brilliant. Yeah. He's so important. He's so important. He's, he's really, him and uh, Ari Shafir, Ari Shafir in particular, he's like, there's a bunch of these guys out there that are just really doing it. Like, they're really doing it the right way. Like, they're not faking that they're some sort of a rebel or pretending to be some sort of a, you know, a, a feminist or a, a person who's socially active because it looks good. No, they're, they're really doing what they're doing because this is who they are. You know, I think yeah. um, that's well, that's comedy in its best form, I think.
0: Well, you know, they they, they make you laugh. They make you think. And most importantly, they make you remember them. And uh Joe, you you definitely fall into those all those categories for me, so thank you.
1: Well, thank you, brother. I I really appreciate that.
0: Thanks a lot, man. I know you have your own podcast to get to, so I will not keep you from it anymore.
1: All right, dude. Good talking to you, brother. Take care. Thanks, Joe. Bye.
0: Last things
2: first.